Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In the last episode, we heard from poet and teacher Kate Clunchy about helping children from refugee or migrant families find their poetic voice and how it helps them process some of their traumatic life experiences. I'd like to know how Kate's methodology could help all pupils and teachers find their voice through poetry as well. Hello again, Kate. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Shall we start with a poem? This is I Am From There. This poem by Ines Hadler, and she was 18 when she wrote it. She'd only been in England about nine months. Um, she'd come from, from Syria, from Damascus. I am from there, after Mamo Darwish. I am from there, and I have memories. I had friends and brothers. I had a tree around the corner from my house. Now I have a room, and I see from my window green and cold buildings and birds still in colours. I remember my brothers, how they died. I want to forget everything. I know I must look to my future. I remember I walked and crossed the land and the sea when I came from there. I learned all the world. I only remember the tears of my brothers as they came down. When I saw the blood on my brother's body, I cannot forget this scene. My goodness. It's very moving, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, it's really moving. So tell us a bit about Enos. And- Enos, well, so that poem was written um, in a room with Shukriya, who, so she was sitting in a room with Shukriya, who was our kind of extra person for the year who was helping me out. She was, Shukriya was a Hazara refugee. So Shukriya is a Shia Muslim and she was persecuted in Afghanistan for being a Shia Muslim and for being a member of this minority, this Persian-speaking um, almond-eyed minority of people called the Hazara. And her people, Hazara people, one of the ways they go is over to Iran. That's actually how um, Shukri's own father made his way out of Afghanistan was to go to Iran because they speak Persian so they can work there but they look different so they get rounded up Hazara boys and one of the things that's happening to Hazara boys now is that they get rounded up by the Iranians and told you can be thrown out of the country or you can have a visa and you can stay and work here after you come back from fighting for Assad so when they talk about Iranian Afghan regiments fighting for Assad, what they actually mean are Hazara boys, 18, 19 years old, same age as Shukriya and Enas out there. And um, Enas had lost her brothers in the massacre in Damascus, three brothers. And, you know, the Hazara boys were involved in that. So, But there was Shukriya mm. and there was Enas and there was no animosity in the room. There was only friendship. And it was Shukriya that identified Enas as somebody that, needed to write a poem. So we'd run down Enas. We had her in the room. We'd supply the grapes. We'd supply the biscuits. Um, I, and I, knew, I realised that we needed a, a text, a shared text to work from. So we had Mamos Darwish, I am from there, which is about being in a prison in Palestine and looking out at your own land from your own window. Um, and, it's, um, and it's about looking through the dictionary for the word homeland. And we had it in Arabic and we had it in English and Shukriya was making a version in Persian, and the two of them were talking across about different language, different, you know, different rhyme forms that they had and different words that they had in common. They were talking about the poem, really. 
Um, and Ines was very, very determined. There's a sense of urgency. We didn't really feel we had a lot of time somehow or other. Ines was absolutely determined to write in English. So we said, no, 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 write in Arabic, it'll be fine. But no, she was writing in Arabic and was using Google Translate as she went. And Shokriya was supplying the words. Um, and then she just wrote that poem. And then as she got onto that thing, I want to write about my brothers, how they died. And she just wrote that thing. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And so that poem appeared. So it says after Mahmoud Darwish in the title, and this gives us a bit of a clue yeah. to some of the um, teaching methodology there. So is that the secret ingredient? To yeah, helping? The, the, secret, the secret ingredient is to, is to let, let them use the model. I mean, that's very strongly, strongly related to I Am From There. It begins with the same words, mm. has the same rhythms. Could any teacher use this? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's how, it, it, I just think it's how poems are made. So Mukahang, my student, who's um, he's now, now a student at Oxford, but he, he goes went back to Nepal for his grandfather's funeral and people were doing call and response poetry. So they somebody would call out some known lines of um, a poem in, actually in his particular caste language, in his limbu language, and people would call back lines back. So those lines would be partly made up and partly traditional. And that's how something like Beowulf was written. It's um, somebody made up a bit and then they also use some lines which they inherit. Mm -hmm. You take a shape and you do it back. And it's just a lot easier. You don't... Uh, and, and I see it over and over again. If I go into a room and, I mean, you know, it can be 30 kids in the class and I read them a poem with a kind of strong shape and I just say, right, now you're going to do your own. And we just start with those lines. They will give you the rhythm back. And they will give you quite deep things about the structure back, provided you don't mention it at all, provided you just let them echo. Our capacity to kind of hear and echo is really, really strong and really, really underused. And provided you don't say, don't copy, if you say, do copy, do echo, you know, if if a kid is very underconfident, then give them something very strong and just let them alter one or two words mm. and they'll still write their own poems. Do they do that through talk? Do you, do you get a lot of Yeah, talking? a lot of oral stuff. So you read it, you read it aloud. It's important to read it aloud really well. Um, they take some stuff from the shape of the page though as well. They've got an inner voice. Mm -hmm. And then just um, give them a line and just let them... I mean, I, I do a lot of call and response. I'll, I'll say the lines very slowly and get them to just write down their own as they go along, just sort of humming it along. The sound and the shape um, and it's quite amazing and uncanny what what comes back it's very enabling it's like birds tweeting the same pattern yeah, as there of course of course we're of course we're able to tweet tweet patterns if you think about it how else do we learn language yeah. but we are uh, we sort of underestimate and push away all of those aspects because they're not quantifiable or something or because they're low in our hierarchy the the sound and the kind of um echoing memory capacity I mean, what poems are for remembering. That's how we used to tell the news. So, you know, that's how we used to remember our stories. You put them in verse so that all of those patterns would be there. And they're all, that that's still there. And our capacity to remember and reproduce the patterns is still there. It's just we don't use it anymore. Mm. We've reduced poetry to these, you know, little dried up thing in a book. And it really isn't that. It really is just, it's really about our talking. That's a really interesting image that is a dried up thing in a book michael rosen was saying that you know we've got this sort of strange disconnection haven't we yeah. between these words on the page and how we actually talk and 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love reading poems and books. Don't get me wrong. I'm 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 right into that particular yeah. aesthetic thing of reading words off the page. They sing very strongly to me. But I'm always amazed by how much, just how much you can get out of such unusual children, and especially children who aren't tuned into the page. So, dyslexic children, or children who are not supposed to be clever for one reason or another, um, children who have been isolated in their language, lost a language, moved a language, suddenly didn't understand things. They they just they tuned into their own, tuned into sounds, tuned into their own memories. It's incredible what they can produce. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because we've got about 22% of children in primary school now who have what we call English as an additional language, EAL. Mm. And yet there's not really much advice coming through to teachers on how to deal with this multilingualism. It's just sort of you know, use it as a resource doesn't give yeah. you very much guidance as a as a teaching practitioner. So, I mean, I think your work does it really beautifully. Are you multilingual yourself? No. <laughs> well, I speak French. Yeah. You know. So um, teachers who aren't multilingual, they can. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, 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 no, I'm not, I'm not multilingual. And um, I mean, I, I learned French. I was taught French well at school and I and went on really good French exchanges. I do, I do speak French pretty well. I can dive in and speak it and I did Latin actually um and I remember I remember my friend being very frustrated with me in Latin because I think one of the things I didn't identify about myself was that I was, I was pretty dyslexic I've got a poor kind of working memory but I've got a really good memory for long things and lots of intuition but I remember my friend saying I don't understand what you do in Latin you just look at it and say what it means and I did I looked at it and said what it meant I was using all my different language all my different other knowledge of language patterns and applying it and it wasn't very kind of official I used to come down on you know different like learning my verbs properly but I think what after and I used to feel deep shame about what the hell I was doing because I didn't understand what I was doing either and the same you know for example when I'm I have difficulty counting feet in poems like in poetry I can't Mm. because of my working memory issue because I can't do a table I can't I can't mark where feet are, mm-hmm. but I've got a very good ear, and I think I think well, I think I've kind of come round to one to valuing those informal things a lot more. So if we if I to undoing the hierarchy and saying it's just as good to be able to hear the shape of a poem, and those kind of hummy noises I make, those are really powerful teaching tools, and I you know the 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 creativity is. It's got so much learning in it. it. It's a difficult thing to. There's a lot of kind of macho-ness and direct instruction and exactitude and list making going on education at the moment, which I really regret. Um, and it's difficult to kind of fight against it. But you can it, it, it really, if you just value your intuition, your motherese, almost your noises, mm. your your sounds, then. All sorts of things can can come through. You can, you know. You don't need to be able to speak ten languages to work with children who. You know, you don't. You just need to value sounds, you know, and stuff that's coming through. I mean, this is um, this is a funny little poem. So, this was a, a boy with really, really, really deep educational needs, and he 
you know, he was in the special educational needs unit and he wrote this poem. And I think he means ros rosary beads. I was asking him about a word. I said, okay, you're gonna, we're going to write about a word what you think is beautiful. And I was reading them some other poems about words. And he came up with rosemary beads, the sound of rose petals floating through the air. I can smell the fresh rose scent and rosemary beads. Rosemary beads, what a dream. My dad gave them to me. Which is a poem. Mm. And it's full of, it's very evocative. It's full of sounds. It's full of smells. It's full of a thing. And he's got the sounds. And he was very pleased with that. And I, I, he's not even across languages. It is kind of across languages. It's about the sound of a word. He's got it wrong. The rosary beads. Mm -hmm. But he's also not got it wrong. He's associated it with lots of other things. And I think just just value that capacity. I think teachers push it away in themselves. People in general push it away in themselves. All the things that they hear in language, all the lovely noises, all the pictures, all the creativity, all the kind of humminess, I think they push that away and say, humminess is not right. And if you can just value your own humminess, if that doesn't sound too silly, <laughs> then maybe that would help you with multilingualism. Yeah, because it's about connecting and it's not about knowing 10 yeah. languages, is it? It's just about letting that, well, it's translanguaging. You're, you know, yeah. we, do, we do it within English as well, don't we? We have different registers and do it in English the whole time all the time so yeah and just ask them about a word what does that word mean mm. what's your favorite word from your own culture bring it in yeah bring the words in bring the words in do me an imitation of your mother talking I do you know because it's quite interesting children don't even notice when they're talking their own language sometimes they don't notice which language they're talking they just move right translate from each other's languages um, you know, let's write a poem half and half. Write me a Ponglish poem. That that that's quite an easy thing to do. Um, and maybe you know, bring in some literature and translation. I mean, I I I've learned quite a lot about <laughs> right just and because I had to, I had to bring in, I had to find an Arabic poem for Enas. So I went and looked for one, and then then you find some more. You know. Yes. Yeah, so you're extending your own kind of collection yeah. of of uh, source texts. And, yeah. And yeah. one day I'll source it so that they word pro program doesn't turn the Arabic into mirror writing, which it still does. But anyway, that's another issue. <laughs> yes. So obviously Oxford Spires Academy, where you've worked, um, is a really diverse school. Mm. What about if a school is, you know, not very diverse and you've mostly got English? How could we encourage a school which has got not so much diversity to embrace multilingualism through poetry? Well, I mean, I think what you said about like, there are languages within languages. So if you're talking about a, like a rural school, for example, where, I mean, I worked in a rural school in Cornwall recently, and they, they've probably got a lot of Berry Cornish in there um, that they're repressing and not bring in, bringing in. I think, you know, one of the things you can bring in is their, is their own language and get them to talk their own language. Um, and I think using whole texts is probably quite a helpful thing, hmm. especially the younger, the younger the child, the more the whole text will help. To look at, I mean, like the, the Muzzy, you know, the, the cartoon. Oh, the big green monster. The big green monster is um is, is very helpful because that uses that uses whole text. I think you can probably use and poems are a bit like that. You can use a whole text, use a whole story. And look at your family tree as well. Um, you know, does mum or dad or whoever you've got say things in a different way to your mate in the playground? And 
Oh yeah, that's all. That's always happening. Generational mm. happening very rapidly. Yeah. So it's not necessary to have you know thirty six languages in your classroom. You can you can find interesting find, find the languages that's there. Yeah. yeah. So what else can we do to encourage poetry to flow? We've got writing poetry. You have entered the children into some competitions. Does this kind mm. of motivate them to? Yeah, to do it? I mean, they we, we we did success and success built on success and kids wanting to do it. We, and the cool kids doing it. Our head boy and head girl for five years was always a serious poet. We we had a um the the main thing is to you know to, is to, and to have the teachers on side. I think the the biggest thing is to nourish teachers and give teachers their own creative space and to make them confident because it's not something that fits tidily into a lesson plan it's got to be kind of an underpinning thing to think that creative writing and creative listening and creative reading is worthwhile there's quite a lot of propaganda against that you need to spend time doing your own and it's also it's a holistic thing I mean I can give people lesson plans but they won't it's much better to give them a creative practice and then they can find their own poems, you know, and, and their own confidence. Because I built my practice out of my own writing, out of my own creative practice and being allowed to do that. Mm. So I think I think I really, whenever I work with teachers and get them to do their own creative writing, amazing stuff comes pouring out of them. They're all incredible poets. Um, and I just, you know, I think once they've had that experience, then they go off, you know, that's the most powerful thing you can possibly do. It's just giving yourself as the adult permission, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Listening to some of those childish patterns, mm. some of your little hummy bits. Yes. In your book, Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me, I was struck by one story about Farah and her mm. dad. And he wanted to write his story down. And Farah emailed you and said, Can you, could you help? Mm. And then the conversation quickly closed up again and she stopped coming to Poetry Group. Um, you were talking in there about the panic about stories. So have you seen much of that kind of thing? Where yeah, people... I think I think most um, refugees, migrants that I know have got some kind of feeling of, of something that they shouldn't say. Um, when, when you come to this country, you have to tell the right story to get in. And it has to be the right story for that moment. Um, and I think one of the things that's happened with mobile phones and also with people smugglers um, is that that story gets you're, you get told what story to tell it's not always true there's all kinds of lies and loading up of stories that goes on and yet these are the really powerful stories about your life you know you're telling the story you know it couldn't be a more powerful story i'm afraid and i need help is and you're grown up and you've thrown away everything you've got i mean that is very few of us can imagine having to say that and you have to tell the right story to get in and that story and then of course you've got your children and the if you've told some kind of lie, which so many people feel obliged to do or get told by people smugglers they have to do, or you know, just the circumstances make them do it, that lie gets passed down to the children. And there's the, it, it weighs very, 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 very heavily on children and um, well, on adults as well. What's the true story? And I think that's why it's important to have a poem which is just a poem. It doesn't have to, you know... Yep. So they might yes, because they might have a story that emotionally they need to tell, but then sort of it's not. But the they're, one feeling, that was... they're, they're feeling it's scary if you tell that story will be thrown out, and very often they're completely wrong about that. But you know, they, it's not it, they, they 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 feel it nonetheless. They feel the weight around around stories, but I think people do need to tell each other how they got here. I think it's a very fundamental thing. Mm. You know, I am from Syria, and this is how I journeyed. 
this is how I came. I'm from Afghanistan and this is how I came. And children who have not come from Syria yeah. or Afghanistan, they have the story of how they've come as well, don't they? Yeah, it's, yes. you know, it's not... I mean, everybody's got a lost place. Mm. Everybody has a, um, a, you know, how how I got here, where I walked from, who my family are. And, and, or, and you know, containing those stories is just very important. It's just something people want to say. Yeah, I, mean, I was working in um, a fairly difficult part of town in Glasgow and, you know, the children hadn't been past the McDonald's on the Great Western Road. They hadn't even been into mm. Glasgow. So they're not talking about crossing deserts or escaping, but mm. there's still a lot yeah, there's still locked. a lot of stories. There's still a lot locked in that they feel like they haven't maybe got permission to to get out there because they might get beaten up for writing a poem or something silly. How can we try and raise up this? Oh, that's very difficult. I've worked mm. with children, poor white children from Glasgow as well. Um, and that kind of doubling down and self-enforced silences, cultural silences, are much more difficult to work with than people who come from rural cultures. Yes. England Poems from School is an incredible book, partly because of the oral cultures that went into it. Yes, that's right. We don't have that same connection. I mean, we have a tradition of oral poetry in the UK as well, but we're kind of looking back. Yeah, it was a a long time ago. Mm. Um, And that that kind of disconnection and um, working class enforced silence is a very, very difficult thing. Mm. It's very difficult to work with. So as a school, you might be able to start an oral culture and tradition, perhaps, if you... Well, if you're very yeah, brave, if you're yeah. quite Just read stories, determined. you know, read stories and keep celebrating stories and believing in stories, then more stories will come. Mm. And everyone does have something to say. They do. I mean, um, David Crystal and Michael Rosen in previous episodes are saying all children are poets. And, and, mm. and I've recently seen that you've done some workshops with early years. Yeah. Um, are we ever too young to write Wait, a no, poem? No, absolutely not, no. There's a, this was actually, I um, helped my, my colleague and friend to devise a workshop and she went off and did it and, um, her, and one little boy came up with a glorious thing. So there's a very simple idea that I use. I mean, I use it with adults. When I go in with like a group of carers or somebody that needs to write a poem, I often use Edith Cantifer's The Table which is about coming home, and it does that very simple thing. If you start with the real things, you put down the concrete things. You put down your bag and you put down your shopping. And then you put down the things that aren't concrete. You put down your memories and you put down your feelings. And it always helps people to write a poem. Everyone has those feelings. You have to put them down somewhere solid. You have to put it on a peg or a table or a sofa or your bedroom floor, wherever you're going to put it down. Um, And little Nadim wrote this adorable little poem about what it what it was, and um, he's four, coming home. Take off our jackets, hang them up, take our gloves off, take our shoes off, put them where they're supposed to go. You take off your brave feeling, because there's nothing to be scared of in the house. No dark caves, no monsters, no witches, no bees, no howling sounds. You don't need your brave anymore. Wash your hands, eat lunch, go get cosy. Very sweet little poem. <laughs> I really love it. And yeah. I have I have a four year old at home and yeah. I can see there's a universality to what this little boy has written. Yeah. And it, it applies to my son too. You know, he come, he's big and brave all day and so well behaved and such a little rule follower. And 
Yeah. Where does you know the rest of him go? <laughs> you you know? don't need your brave anymore. Yes, yeah. yes, you can stop being big and brave and well behaved, and you yeah. know thinking about phonics, and you can just be yourself and yeah. be. I whole. think I mean, and a lot of children, just that very simple thing. If you you know you write about um, an aspect of yourself as a person, you know, so if you if you've been told that your spelling is very young, you can write about you know your spelling. How old is your spelling? How old is your rage? And is it cross? You know, what animal is it? Just those, I mean, I, I, I ask, it's a, I almost always use models, but I do also just ask those very simple questions. You know, so if we're thinking about your feelings, what colour is it? What animal is it? What weather is it? That, that, that anyone can ask those questions mm. and you'll you get quite powerful answers, you know. And this will be obviously through talk with the very little ones. Mm. And then the teachers are sort of transcribing, are they? The... I think that one was transcribed, yeah. I think that, that child was too tiny to write. Mm. The right. And, um, you know, with dis very dyslexic children, I semi-transcribe. People write, you know, they they, they, they hand me pothooks and I interpret them and type them up with them and, and, you know, to, to, get them, to get the poems down. Yeah. Um, it's you know the writing element of it isn't a barrier to poetry, is it? You, no, often not. I mean, often you know. So I remember Aisha, who's very very dyslexic, saying she was writing this incredible po poem. And I was thinking, what? Where did you get that from? And she said, well, I think of them all week and hope they'll come out in poetry on Tuesdays. So she stored them in the back of her head these phrases orally. She knew she couldn't write them down, so she kind of honed them in the back of her mind. And actually, that's my own writing process. I do that because. Um, I'm pretty, I can't, people always imagine writers writing down notes. I, I, I physically am very bad at that. I can't write things down. So I have to get, wait till I get to a screen. Mm. So I store things at the back of my head. And it's like an earworm kind of. Yeah, you just go round and round. And that makes poems because you have to remember them. So you have to keep them short. So you have to hone your phrases. Mm. So if you can, if you can manage to get a dyslexic's phrases down the, down the, down the pipes, they're incredibly um, rounded and that's what Aisha's poems are like you know it's kind of downloading process um, and then and then also a translation process because she writes them down and you you cannot believe she's she'll fill a page of this round handwriting ridiculous spelling mistakes all over the place and then you actually type up what she's written and incredible singing sophisticated poem coming out I've never seen anything quite like it but you're peeling away a few layers of I don't actually cut anything. Things it's like just all there. Spelling, punctuation, and grammar. Just, just the way it looks on the page. Yeah, it's um, in the you know the. Actually, I mean, I mean, she has got better and better her writing because she's so determined. Her writing has got much better, but there's still a dissonance between the voice of a twenty-five-year-old and the, and the spelling of a yeah twelve-year-old. <laughs> but if we were to sort of judge that on current standards of mm. how how to mark, um, it would miss the point of absolutely. And uh, all of my students. Um, well, you know, a few Mugang or Jasmine, whatever, did get very, very high marks, but we had a history of being told our poems were bees. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's quite sort of disappointing, so, really. Isn't I know. It? So that poem I began with, um, Exile, the, the Shukri's poem about Exile, that was marked as a bee. A level creative writer was marked down to a bee. Well, because. Think, because, who knows? I think because he didn't have enough wow words in it. Oh, dear. Or it didn't rhyme. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So um, I think th I think people have great difficulty in marking poems. I don't think they really do. I think they have self doubt. I think people know what a good poem is, 
Um, but again, you have that reductive problem where you have to describe lang rich language in poor language. And um, because language is poor, it needs more bits. So they need to be able to say why it's good in poor language. And they can't. So they say it needs more wow words. It needs more elaboration. Or more it fronted adverbials. More, yeah, it needs more. It needs more elab elaboration. They're always moving towards. Oh, you need you need to be more elaborate. Which is, as any you know, as any writer or reader will tell you, is simply not true. Well, indeed, it's not. In fact, Michael Rosen's um, comment in a podcast we've yeah. just recorded said, you know, Charles Dickens in the beginning of Bleak House, he opens with a one word sentence: fog. Yeah. In, Presumably, he'd get marked down for that. He would get marked down for that in the current. Uh, exam system, wouldn't he? Yeah. So I presume you would never tell children to include a few more nouns or no. adverbial clauses or... No. I mean, um, I... When... I do quite a lot of text-to-text -text editing and um, I find that a very rapid way of improving them. So we start with, you know, a rough text and if a child is very, very underconfident, I'll just take it away, type it up and bring it back to them so they can see what they've done. And then I, I try and do one-to-ones and actually alter their text and edit it in front of them, whole text, whole text, so they get better text. And that's a very, very... I do that with university students as well. It's a very rapid way of learning. They'll come back the next time writing so much better independently. They internalise... It's, it's about complexity. So if you show them the text altered in all different... You alter with them so it becomes more complex rather than say oh you could change all your verbs if you physically just do that say oh, if I say okay look we're just going to put this in the present tense look at that just going to take all your adjectives out here and they go Bleh! but then you take out the adjectives and then you see they see how much more powerful the thing is the next time it will be they'll have thought about those things they'll have internalized them because I think language you have to internalize um, language things about language in order to make yourself into a better writer it has to come from inside you not from outside you so if you alter the text so you get a better finished text that's a rapid way of internalizing that lesson and then people become rapidly better writers so then i will do meta language with sophisticated competent writers however old they might be i can now do meta language with aisha for example I'll just say, just pay attention to your future, to your tenses. I think you've done some slippage there and she'll go, sort it all out. Um, or I can, you know, Mokahan can send me something and I'll say, shouldn't this be couplers? And he'll go, oh yeah, do, 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 do. let's put it in couplers. You know, what about your enjoyment there? I can use meta language confidently with him mm. because we've developed that together. But I don't do it. I, I don't, I would never tell year seven, redraft and pay attention to your wow words and your adverbials because it makes no sense. And why would you do it? They don't have the meta-language. They don't care about the meta-language. They need to change the text in a way that's meaningful and internalise those rules. I think people waste quite a lot of time redrafting when what they mean is writing out in your best handwriting. It doesn't really help. It doesn't change the text. And it's about what are they actually trying to say? Yeah. And are they conveying that in you know, their best possible way of conveying yeah. it rather than, you know, well, let's, you know, look at the, our checklist. of. Why would they look at the checklist? Mm -hmm. They they need to want to make the better story. They need to invest in their story um, and internalise ways of writing it. And, I mean, 
again, I think that's is partly me coming from my my own dyslexia. So I can only do whole text to whole text. I can't do, I simply can't do two lines of text at the same time. I find it really painful to look to the side of a piece of paper and try to apply what it says into the middle. And you can see that makes me a very strange marker. So what I kind of do now is change the text in front of me and then talk to the kid about how it's been changed. Mm -hmm. And I find that quite a powerful practice. Maybe it's a powerful practice just because it's powerful for me, but I think it can work quite well with other people. So you're talking about, you know, you're looking at their poem and saying, mm -hmm. well, if we put this in the present tense. If we put this in the present tense and if we make this into couplets, yeah. doesn't it look better? Yes. But you're not starting from a right. Well, it's yeah. not an iambic pentameter, so it's not worth. No, reading. no, but no, but I will. I will walk around going. Let's listen to the rhythm. Baba da baba da baba da baba da boo. Do do you want that boo there? Hmm. Yeah. Maybe you do, or maybe you don't. And I will say that that breaks there. With certainly with you know, shukriyas or murgahangs, I will be saying, this could be a sonnet. Mm -hmm. Let's make it new, and they're both right sonnets. See how it feels. Yeah. I feel like you're coming back to the how does it feel if how you, you how, if you internalize it yeah mm. have you have you tried this as couplets mm. and I can do that with and they they will rewrite them I mean you know Mukherjee would rewrite things hundreds of times because mm -hmm. he's a proper sophisticated self motivated poet yes he's not just writing it out in his nicest handwriting absolutely not but I I think it's um, there's also when you come to rewriting, redrafting, when you're when you're dealing with delicate with children who've been told they're they're stupid, they 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 think they think with low self esteem, which so many children have, it's so easy to be crushing about a bit of writing, and go and write it out again is can be crushing. And it, it, it I don't think I've ever taught anybody anything about writing by telling them that they'd made a mistake, actually. I mean, I've told lots of people they made mistakes because that's what I've been trained to do. But now I'm old and grey and full of breath, whatever Yeats said, <laughs> I just tell people what's good and just build on what's good. And that works so much more powerfully. You, you, you just have to teach writing on saying, I, I hear you and I believe you and that's interesting and... This is worth hearing. Yeah, this is worth hearing, and this will be better if, maybe, carefully. You know. yeah. Or here's an example of something yeah. that makes me think of, and yeah. what do you think about that? And it's a process. Yeah, if you can. But but not by, you know, you, this would be better with a fronted adverbial. Actually, most things wouldn't be better with a fronted adverbial. I can think of very few texts that would be. <laughs> and if you do want to do people to do fronted adverbials, it's going to make... Also, fronted adverbial, you, can't, you don't know what it means until you translate it. Somebody has to say, oh, it's hurriedly, and then you get it. And you'll be so much more, if you, want, if you seriously want people to do that, you should give them a very rhetorical bits of, bit of writing with lots of hurriedlies and hastilies at the front of it, and then just say, imitate that, and they will, and then they'll do your fronted adverbial. Um, David Christen actually recommended this book. It's fortunately... And all mm. the sentence, all the pages start with fortunately, and then the next page it says unfortunately, really? and it becomes more and more ludicrous. It was really funny, but yeah, yeah. it is. And then you remember it. Yeah. I think people, grammar is the description of language. It's not the other way around. 
People always say grammar, oh, grammar is a fundamental. No, it's not. It's a, it's a drawing on the top. It can barely keep up with what we're doing with English. Mm. English is this kind of mad pigeon language that's made up of all different la other languages. And we can barely describe it in grammar because it's so idiomatic um, and so moving all the time and forming all the time and so full of crazy archaic rules as well as brand new ones. It's not a fundamental thing. Mm. We can reading is fundamental. You know, um, write talking is actually fundamental. Stories are fundamental. Images are fundamental. And grammar is the description of what we do with them. And it's trying to draw a circle around constantly moving yeah. parts, isn't it? Yeah, and and using really again quite thin, obscure language to describe something that's way too rich to to describe. And you've said before, in fact, in part one of this um, discussion, that language comes in clumps. Mm, it's all attached to each other, especially a poem. Mm. Can you dissect that a little bit for us? So this idea that language comes in clumps, and is that in dissonance to the way we teach language then? Yeah, definitely, because we, we're trying to teach language as if it was a foreign language. Um, I mean, what we know, I was talking to a professor of 18th, early, early literature, 16th and 17th century literature and migration. And she was reminding me that um, Pocahontas, you know, the, mm. the Native American princess, she she was a child. who She learned English as a child. She was just sent across. And when the early settlers went to um, colonial America, they sent the ship's boys, seven and eight-year-olds. They just sent them off to live with the Native Americans to learn the language and then come back and then tell you what it was. Right. So children have got that capacity to be immersed in another language and just learn it. And we know that most, m across m most time, most people have been illiterate and multilingual. So they speak more than one language, which they learn by immersion. So that must be the natural way to learn a language. And if we look at children, we can see that that's true. And that there are many studies confirming that if you teach children a second language functionally via grammar, they learn less well than the children who are learning by, by immersion. So when we learn by immersion, we learn the idioms, we learn language by clumps, we learn language in whole things, in the, the rhythm, in the sound, in the attitude. You know, I always feel I have to make a French face when I'm doing French. And that if I make French gestures with my hands, my French comes out better. <laughs> you know, just Because it's all attached to itself. It's a bodily It's a bodily thing. whole thing. And speaking French is attached to almost things that you can think, shapes in your head. Um, and then, yeah, I, and I think a poem is like a representation of that because a poem is a, is a sound world. Poems are constructed to key into all of those things because they're constructed to, so that we can remember things, you know, on a small, small scale, on a big scale. But, they, you know, one of the functions of a poem is to tell the news, mm. to go from town to town telling the news, telling stories. And rhyme is powerful. And rhyme isn't it? is so powerful. Mm. Half rhyme, rhyme, essence, all the different shapes of it. So, a poem is like a little, um, it abolishes the hierarchy, which says grammar is important, vocabulary, and then, you know, first you get the verbs, and then you get the, then you get the vocabulary, and it must all be accurate. In fact, idiom is probably what's the most important thing. Mm. And um, a poem does that for you. It reverses the hierarchy, so the sound is the important thing, and all the other. Uh, unspeakable, almost unlistable connections are the most important things. All the, the drum beats, the sounds, the attitudes of a language. 
it's more ineffable yeah hierarchical isn't it absolutely ineffable and unhierarchical bits of language are enshrined in a poem so a poem is like an immersion booth you know you stick your head in a poem and it gives you all the bits and you know if we were in a primary or secondary school context we can you know maybe get away from this idea that we need to just look at verbs or I don't think we should be looking at verbs at all. Verbs or... I, we shouldn't be doing that at all in primary school. Mm. We should be, you know, the, there's a um, a practitioner called Pi Corbett who goes around and does talks for learning and he just does the really simple thing of telling stories in a story shape and then getting children to talk and write stories in that story shape. And their work is just much better than it would have been. And I do the same thing. I give kids a poem and get them to write in that poem shape. And behold, their work is so much better than you could possibly imagine. Are we cheating? No, we're just tuning into something really fundamental about the way that children learn language, mm. the way that humans yeah. learn and use language, which is that you echo great big chunks of it. Yeah, more translate than you, as well. Yeah, you translate. Mm. You 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 translate and you move across languages and you move. You, you don't do one bit of language at a time. It just comes attached to all the other bits comes attached in great clumps of language yes and then if you want to kind of zoom out and look at it with you know i don't know what's the word structuralist spectacles you can do that you could if you, if you could if you like but but not many children want to at all i've very rarely met any that do one or two and they can be allowed mm. but for the moment but the, what we do by only looking at language in that way is quite crushing to our natural abilities. It's as if we'd all decided to learn the tango from a book of diagrams. As if we'd never stood... When we were learning to dance, it was entirely done from a book of diagrams. Without the music. Without any music. And that's not how people teach dance. No. Or we don't learn to sing from a book, from a set of diagrams either. Somebody stands up and sings. And that's how you learn. And that's how you learn to dance. And how you learn to do a poem is somebody says you a poem and then you join in. That's how you learn to speak. People speak to you. They People learn. speak to you and then you speak back. Mm. And they speak back with all their, you know, with gestures, with tone of voice, with stance. And, and inaccuracies. Well. And inaccuracies and idiomatic whatevers. They bring that with them. And um, it's really, really sad that in this country that we've, in primary schools where we have children together, that we've thrown away the most fundamental thing of all which is stories and talking mm. shall we um have a look at some poems to finish off sure. have any of the poems in england really surprised you when you when you saw them or oh they're all surprising some... yeah they're a very surprising collection mm. um i think uh, but the the one at the the thing that kind of opened my eyes to what kids could actually do is probably the one at the end um, which is called i remember which it was called I Don't Remember, rather, My Mother Country. So this was quite early on when I was still, I suppose, when I still thought that having a second language might be a disadvantage. Because mm. I think, you know, we're quite far mm. down the road of appreciating multilingualism, but some listeners might be thinking, that's all very well for mm. Kate. Well, what about, you know, if I've got no experience in that? So this was early for you in your... This was early for me, and... um Rukia wrote this completely on her own. She just handed it to me. And I kind of didn't believe she could possibly have done it. But it, it is true. It is hers. And she wrote it in response to Tagore, who's um, 
a Bengali poet. And he's got poems about I don't remember my mother. And it's she came to England when she was six, and so Bangladesh is this kind of um, you know, mother country, earthy thing. It's got the most wonderful sounds in it, and it it's about earth, you know just the earth memory and and noises and the things that actually belong to you. And it that opened my after this, I didn't I stopped condescending to kids, and um, that's how after I I've. That's how I formed the Very Quiet Foreign Girls Poetry Group. So the Very Quiet... Very Quiet Foreign Girls Poetry Group, which was just girls who really didn't talk very much, but they wrote really good poems. Um, And this poem is bred a hundred poems. I mean, you know, I go into a class and say, okay, just tell me some things you absolutely don't remember is a better way of saying them. What do you remember? But the, the, the sounds in this poem are just exquisite and they come from her Bengali language. My mother country. I don't remember her in the summer, lagoon water sizzling, the kingfisher leaping, or even the sweet honey mangoes they tell me I used to love. I don't remember her comforting garment, her saps of date trees, providing the meagre earnings for those farmers out there in the gulf under the calidity of the sun, or the mosquitoes droning in the monsoon or the tipper-tapper of the rain on the tin roofs dripping on the window, I think. It's just absolutely stunning. It is stunning, yeah. And the prompt was what you don't remember about your... She didn't, she didn't even need a prompt. She, she was working for a Tagore poem, because I, I told her to go and model. I was on to that. Mm-hmm. So, so just to end with, so in that, in that group that had Rakir in it and, um, and Vivian, who was from Hungary... And, and I went in with Auden's Look Stranger, which is a very complex poem, very ang- on which he wrote in an alliterative Anglo-Saxon. Look stranger on this island now, the leaping light for your delight discovers, stand stable here and silent be, that through the channels of the ear may wander like a river, the swaying sound of the sea. So it's a poem that really doesn't try to do anything except give you the English language. Very, very English mm. with that. Because I'm always trying to explain to kids when they first come, don't try to rhyme too much in English. We've hardly got any. You know, we've got all these other sounds. We've got lots and lots of alliteration, lots and lots of assonance, but we are, we're really poor in full rhyme. Um, and they find, they find it frustrating, but, you know, it's, it's true. We don't have enough rhymes. If you rhyme, it, it makes you sound funny very often, um, especially as a beginner. But um, I, I will, it was very formative for me to read that poem with Rakia and Vivian and Shukriya and Tazina. And I don't think they even got it, you know, but they still liked it. And I just said, right, you're going to write about your own landscape. And within 40 minutes, they had, you know, 20 minutes really writing, they had each written me a version of, you know, that, that, that poem that sounded like their language and that sounded like their, um, you know, their landscape. So they're, they're just... Actually, I could could end there, really, with those two poems. Silhet. There, sunbirds chipper, their feathers light lime seep in the sunshine. Crisp leaves grow wild on olives and the silent streams run. Fresh water to guide the illish, silver, simple fish away to the sea. Mango trees summit and soar, stalk high above the forest floor, where a Bengal tiger obsolete as an emperor 
trembles as the hushed wind breathes. Obsolete as an emperor. And you can hear the Bengali in there. And then sitting next to her is Vivian, who's um, currently reading languages at St Andrews and creative writing. She's writing about Hungary. Look at these flatlands before you. Endless sky fills empty space. Stand here and open up your mind. Notice the light riding on its cloud horse, throwing shadows on the grassy ground. Stand here and hear the whistle of the wind blowing the golden sand. Remember it elsewhere, the free and wild wind as a gentle touch. Kate Clancy, thank you very much for joining me.